This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Nicholas Douse. Nicholas is the founder of urban beekeeping collective Honeyfingers. He joined me to talk about the concerning recent detection of Varroa mite in Australia via the port of Newcastle. A deadly parasite, Varroa mite has plagued every other continent on Earth except Australia until now. Nicholas discusses the likelihood of Varroa mite being eradicated and, if it is not, what its effect might be on honeybee populations, beekeeping and agriculture. It's such a pleasure to welcome back onto this program a guest who's been on before, I think it was in 2020s when we went deep into urban beekeeping and bee culture with Nicholas Douse, who is the founder of Honeyfingers, an urban beekeeping collective that uh, you can also eat the honey by Honeyfingers that Nick cultivates and creates through his brilliant honeybees. And um, it's a really, 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 really good honey. It's one of those ones that starts off runny and then becomes really crystallized and like a total flavor bomb in your mouth. So I'm very excited that spring is kind of around the corner almost. And I'm sure Nicholas is too, but we're going to be talking about something that's pretty serious Well, very serious, in fact. It is Varroa mite, which has been detected in New South Wales only very recently. It wasn't something that featured in Australia in any permanent sense before. So this is really concerning because pretty much every other part of the world has Varroa mite except Australia. It's a, a, a real worry for beekeepers. It's a worry for farmers and all manner of scientists who also have a great interest in bees and honeybees. So I'm going to be speaking now with Nicholas about the situation for honeybees, but unfortunately under quite dire circumstances. So I welcome Nick onto the show now. Hi there, Nick, and thank you very much for joining us again. Good morning, Amy. Thanks for inviting me back on. Um, I wish it was to talk about something a little more cheerful than Varroa might, but um, I think it's also great to have a chat about it and to get yeah. the, uh, the listeners up to speed on what's going on. I couldn't agree more. It was something I thought I straight away have to have on the show. And I'm glad that we can talk because you're coming at this issue from a range of perspectives. And I think it's pretty valuable, to be honest, because we're hearing through the media you know, people from very specific perspectives, you know, whether they're a scientist and that's, you know, their focus is on wild native bees, or maybe um, they're a farmer who uses bees to pollinate their crops. There's a whole range of really specific perspectives, but I really appreciate yours, which, you know, you're coming from a really broad understanding of honeybees and also the broader bee ecosystem that honeybees sit within. So, Let's just talk about Varroa mites. So you penned a, an article in Assembly Papers in 2015 saying that we were in this golden age of beekeeping because Australia was untouched by Varroa mite, but you said this could not last forever, that at some point Varroa mite would arrive in Australia and it may be so pervasive that it'll be really tough to eradicate I wonder, could you tell us and take us through, for those who don't know what Varroa mite is and I guess the gravity of the situation, 
what is Varroa mite broadly and what's the type of Varroa mite that has been detected here in New South Wales? How did this all come about? Okay, um, well, Varroa mite is, as the name suggests, a little red mite. So imagine something that is a little bit smaller than a sesame seed. Um, kind of looks like a little shellback tick, if anybody's seen one of those, but it's red. And it essentially breeds in honeybee nests. So the nests of Apis serrana, which is the Asian honeybee, and Apis mellifera, which is the uh, European or Western honeybee, they crawl into the little cells where bees have uh, are raising their young or their brood. And so there's an egg that's laid by the queen bee in the bottom of the little honeycomb cell, which hatches into a larvae and the, the mites breed in there and feed on that larvae, that little cell gets capped. So the honeybees sort of cap that cell when the um, the honeybee pupates, so it creates a little uh, cocoon around itself. And then when the adult bee emerges from that cell, the mites come with them. And what they're doing that whole time is essentially feeding off the fats of the bees. So they weaken the bees. And in addition to that, they're also vectors for a number of different types of diseases, including uh, crippled wing disease, which as the name suggests, creates these very crinkly wings, which stop the bees from flying out so they can only act as nurse bees. And they've been responsible for really terrible health outcomes, like really bad um, declines in healthy bee numbers throughout the world. And as you said, Australia up until now has been experiencing this sort of golden age of beekeeping where we have this continental-wide varroa-free beekeeping landscape. And that has meant that we haven't really experienced the same sorts of problems that beekeepers in the rest of the world have been experiencing. So from my point of view, it appears that honeybees can tolerate a range of other diseases and pesticides and herbicides and industrial scale farming and all of that stuff. But if you add varroa mite, it's the tipping point and you will see that the bees can no longer cope with it. I went to a very interesting presentation by Ken Walker, who heads up our entomology museum, Victoria, and he had a very interesting statistic. And that was that, um, in Australia, about 30% of our beehives are managed, so by beekeepers, but 70% of them aren't managed. So they're living in forests and, you know, tree hollows and in walls of houses and things. Um, and that means that we are getting a lot of free pollination from those non-managed or those wild colonies. But when Varroa gets here, we could see up to 90%. 90% of those non-managed or those wild families of bees wiped out. And that's essentially what they saw in New Zealand. So it's a very big threat to honeybee health. And it means essentially that beekeepers are going to have to start treating their hives with miticides and these different types of acids to manage it. So all of a sudden, we're going to have all of these treatments going into our hives as well. Whereas up until now, we've had premium treatment-free honey, but also treatment-free beeswax and other bee products. Yeah. So it's a big deal. Oh, it sounds really dire. And um, 
I just wanted to ask, I guess, about the two different species of Varroa mite, because there's Varroa destructor and Varroa Jacobsoni. And I wondered, do we know what type of Varroa mite has made it into Australia? I'm pretty sure it's destructor. So they've both landed in the past. Um, I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure it's the destructor that's here now. Yep. And so some people might think, you know, how does this happen? Australia has a really tough biosecurity law system. You know, it's really hard for pests to get into Australia. And, you know, we even remember Johnny Depp's dog situation, you know, so there's a whole range of things that Australia prides itself on. But it sounds like this particular mite has gotten through the port system, so through the seas uh, in Newcastle. Is that traditionally how Varroa mite has made it but not quite established itself on Australia's shores? Yeah, there's been a couple of incursions. Um, one of them, I think the last one was probably down here in Victoria, in Melbourne, and yes, it, it came in in a shipping container, but they were actually able to find where the swarm or the little nest uh, was originally, and they were able to um, destroy it and able to trace it um, to the source. In the past, uh, I know that, for example, um, Jacob Sini has come in through North Queensland in the mast of a ship and it flew across onto the mainland. And, but once again, they you know got it back to the source. There's a little bit of a mystery about this one because in June, I think on the 22nd of June, Varroa mite was detected in what they call sentinel hives. So they put these hives out around ports specifically for this purpose. So they monitor them and they found Varroa, which means that it is a secondary uh, infection, if you like. So obviously the Varroa mite wasn't brought in in the sentinel hive. The Varroa mites come in from somewhere else. And there's some speculation as to not only where it's come from, but how long it's been in Australia. So they think that it, it's at least back until May, um, possibly even April, but the breeding cycle of Varroa, which occurs mostly in the warmer months, suggests that it was definitely here, you know, earlier on in the year and we assume has sort of jumped over from a, from a ship or a shipping container or something like that, but I don't think they've actually been able to pinpoint it exactly this time. Uh, which is unfortunate because in the past they have and they've managed to get right on top of it. But this time it seems that it's out. Mm. It's very concerning that we don't know the source exactly. So, you know, you could destroy them just like in previous cases. And, you know, you mentioned there Ken Walker and I've had the great pleasure of speaking with him before and it is very worrisome to hear that 90% of those wild honeybees would potentially die off. And I guess I was quite interested in your previous piece because you had said that really the ratios of wild honeybees to managed honeybees are pretty much like the opposite to the United States. So in the US, it's 70% managed and 30% wild, whereas in Australia at the time, it was 70% wild and 30% managed. Is that still the situation at the moment? And is that a concern because those wild honeybees wouldn't be monitored like a managed honeybee hive would? 
I'm not sure now what the the numbers would be, but I'm assuming that it would be fairly similar. And the reason that they lost so many of their um, wild uh, honeybee families is because of Varroa. And yes, there's this real issue about the non-managed hives getting Varroa, and it's so much harder to um, monitor and treat all of those nests. So in beekeeping terms, we call a non-managed family of bees a nest, and we call a managed um, family of bees a hive. So if I'm talking about nests, I'm talking about um, bees that are in trees and and so forth. Um, On the plus side, there's an argument that says that those wild nests, if they've survived in places where Varroa has become endemic, they've built up um, what they call Varroa resistance, and that's a real plus. So it means that the behaviour of the bees uh, is such that they've learned to live with Varroa mite in a good way. On the other end of the scale, it also means that they are um, potentially what some beekeepers call a Varroa bomb. So that means that it's a hive where the mite count gets too high for the nest to be able to manage. It kills the nest and in the meantime, you know, thousands um, of mites go out on the bees as they're foraging and that's how it's spread. So the mites crawl onto the bees. They often are on the underside where there's these um, little gaps in the scales, if you like, or the, the segments of, of the bee's body. And the bees fly out to forage, as you know, on flowers for nectar and for pollen. And if another bee rubs up against that bee while they're feeding, the mite jumps across, or sometimes the mite falls off on the flower. And when another bee comes along, they hitch a ride with that mite, go back to the hive. The mite only the mite can essentially lay eggs in a cell. Um, some of those will be um, male um, mites that emerge, and then they can mate. So you can effectively have a whole colony of mites that are bred up from one singular mite that goes back into a hive. And that's a that's a real issue at the moment, even in Australia, because if we've got mites that have made it into sentinel hives and into other beehives that are managed by beekeepers, the question is, you know, how many are out there in wild nests? That's keeping some beekeepers, I'm sure, up at night, as well as many in um, the Department of Primary Industries in New South Wales. Yeah. And they have been you know, a key part of the response, as have beekeepers in New South Wales. And um, I know that the federal government also has some responsibility over this as well, and they're also dealing with foot and mouth and trying to prevent that from coming in uh, yeah. via barley. So there's a lot on people's plates at the moment. But um, I guess we've seen headlines saying that beekeepers have been instructed to destroy certain hives and I wondered, you know, what's the status at the moment in terms of the response from the department at the uh, state level in particular? You know, how would you assess their response so far and its effectiveness in trying to destroy Varroa mite and try and prevent it from getting out beyond New South Wales? This is the question because... I was chatting with a friend of mine, another beekeeper down here yesterday, and we observed that there were the sort of two narratives that were running 
with the response to um, to the Varroa incursion. On the one hand, you've got New South Wales essentially in a sort of identify and destroy mode with any of the 24 sites that Varroa has been detected. And that um, essentially beekeepers, are, if you're within this little red zone on a map, you have to destroy your hives. And it's completely and utterly heartbreaking for those beekeepers, both the backyard beekeepers and the commercial beekeepers. And there's also some quite controversial baiting going on as well. So there's a, like a sugar syrup with a fripanel, which is a, a type of pesticide being put out, which attracts honeybees, but it also attracts a whole bunch of pollinators. And once they eat that, they die. And so it's a you know very, very tough love and very, very controversial love. But there's a lot of really hardworking apiary officers and scientists and you know, public servants on the ground who are working really, really hard to get on top of this. There's also a bunch of um, volunteers who are mostly comprised of beekeepers. They're recruiting from New South Wales and Victoria. So they're all going up there essentially doing what we now know is tracking and tracing. So they're getting out there, they're testing all these hives, and then they're hoping that the beekeepers who own them run pretty good um, systems of managing their hives where they can, you know, tell the officials where the hives came from and if they've sold any hives where they've gone and if they've moved them where they've gone. And so far, I think there's like 16, 1700 beehives that have been destroyed, which is incredibly heartbreaking. And more than half of those have come from the commercial beekeeper, whose name we don't have to mention here, who, um, you know, unfortunately was the beekeeper who had Varroa detected in his hives. So that's one narrative. On the one hand, you've got this quite intense um, identify and exterminate um, policy. But then the other narrative is that um, after a little pause in decision-making about how we're going to, um, we beekeepers, manage pollination in spring, there's this area on the Murray called Sunrasia, and it um, isn't really something you'll ever see on a map. It's kind of more of a region, but it straddles both Victoria and New South Wales. It's a big irrigation crop area, and around it, then you've got all the, the big grain crops. So it's a, one of the, the big food bowls of the country. And what they have there is almonds, like more than 50,000 hectares of almonds. You've got a growing almond industry that's responding to a growth in plant-based diets. Um, and you've got really big players coming in, um, investing in these big almond farms like um, Hancock, Gina Reinhart's one of her companies, and even Canada's public sector pension board is investing in big almond farms. And a lot of these almond farms are quite young. And as the trees grow, of course, the uh, amount of flowers that need to be pollinated increase. And there's a huge demand for hives to get onto these crops, particularly the almond crop, which is worth about a billion dollars, a billion dollars. And they need really about 300,000 hives on there in about two weeks, two to three weeks, for a few weeks to do all of the pollination. So the bees cover themselves in 
the pollen from one flower, they fly off to another flower, they pollinate that flower, and the, the bee creates a seed, which is the almond that ends up in our protein bars or in our almond milk and a bunch of it, maybe 40% or so, is exported over to China. So it's this huge industry. And for beekeepers, the big commercial beekeepers, it's a really big source of income. So they get paid something like, for argument's sake, $165 to put their hive, one hive, um, on um, almonds for a couple of weeks, for a few weeks. And we're talking about people here who might have 2,000 beehives. So if you do the sums, that's a lot of money in addition to the fact that the almond crops are so big. So there's a huge economic interest in making sure that almond pollination goes ahead. And getting back to my point about the two narratives, on the one hand, you've got a narrative over on one side of New South Wales, which is essentially, you know, identify and destroy. Yet, even though we think that Varroa is sort of out there, you've also got a permit system that's going to allow those bees to travel over to Sunraysia, which includes New South Wales, but also Victoria. So it strikes me that there's uh, that's an inconsistent approach uh, in terms of biosecurity. And I'd argue that, you know, that interest for most of the people that do want to get their hives um, down there and the crops pollinated are probably more motivated by economics than they are by biosecurity. Yeah, well, that's certainly going to affect Victoria's beekeepers if that happens. And, you know, it's hard to see how it couldn't lead to an incursion here in Victoria, given how much or easily they seem to be spreading. And I have seen in the ABC that there have been around 50 million bees likely eradicated in terms of individual bees. And I wonder, you know, you've mentioned sentinel hives and that being a mode of detection, but what are the other ways that backyard beekeepers or urban beekeepers detect varroa mite. What are the ways at the moment that uh, beekeepers are being told to check for varroa mite within their own hives? In the rest of the world where varroa has been something beekeepers have been managing for some time, they actually have a slightly different um, designed hive than us. They have a removable um, tray down the bottom which has an inspection board and the bottom's ventilated. So what happens is the mite falls off the bees, falls down to the bottom of the hive, and there's a little tray that you can pull out that's um, covered in a sticky substance and the, you can do a mite count quite easily. Um, and if you do have that type of inspection board and, and ventilated um, bottom board in Australia, that's how you do it. But most of us, including myself, don't. And there's a couple of different ways that we can check. The one that seems to be um, the easiest and most popular is what we call the sugar shake. And so with the sugar shake, you basically get uh, about half a cup of bees from the brood nest, so where the baby bees are being raised, which is where the varroa is, because that's where they go to breed. Mm -hmm. You pop them into a jar that has a little mesh on the top and you pour in a big tablespoon of um, icing sugar and you roll the bees around in this icing sugar until they're all covered. And essentially the mites don't like it. And 
the bees also start to clean themselves and shake themselves. And if you then shake the bees, keeping in mind that there's a, a, a like a mesh on the lid of this jar over a bucket of water, anything that's attached to the bees falls off, in theory, including mites. And the icing sugar dissolves in the water and the mites float to the top. It's not incredibly accurate, um, but it is a system that most backyard beekeepers can do pretty easily. You can buy one of these kits from your local um, beekeeping supply store or get in touch with um, Agriculture Victoria. Um, and if you do it regularly enough, it's actually not a bad way to check for mites. And obviously, if you find them to report them straight away. Yeah, look, I would say the one thing that everybody can do is get registered as a beekeeper. So, and that's not about helping out, you know, the government in any way. It's actually about helping your fellow beekeepers. So if you register as a beekeeper, it's free for up to five hives. If you do it online, you just tell, um, you know, the apiary offices where your bees are located and how many of them you have. And then if there is an outbreak, you get emails from and communications from Agriculture Victoria and the APRI offices, which is what I've been getting um, since the 24th of June, where they you know, emailed me to tell me about the Varar incursion in Newcastle. And there's lots of advice on the homepage of registering to become uh, a beekeeper, including all those instructions I just mentioned um, for doing the sugar shake. And there's a couple of other tests that you can apply as well. And I would just recommend that everybody who's a beekeeper, please get registered so we can look after each other as we stare into the, the big changes that are coming down the line. I'm speaking with Nick Douse and we're talking about the detection of Varroa mite in New South Wales. Now, Nick, one question, well, there's a few questions. Um, I'm going to put one from a listener to you in just a moment. But before I do that, we have been in winter. So traditionally, that wouldn't be a time where bees are very active because they're usually very cold and they're in their hives for most of the time. But because it's happened up in New South Wales, I wonder whether their climate has been a factor in potentially the spread. And I know this is something that you've raised uh, with me before, and I was just curious to know if you could expand on that and, and hear your thoughts around the fact that although we're in winter, is that a good or a bad thing in this particular scenario? Oh, look, I think it's a good thing. So um, having said that, a winter up in Newcastle is very different to a winter here. So my understanding is on the day that it was detected in Newcastle, it was 21 degrees and bees can't fly under 10 degrees Celsius. They stay inside. At 16 degrees, they start to fly out a bit. And once they're at 20 degrees, they're pretty busy. Mm. So um, even though it was winter up there, um, they would have definitely been busy. The good news is that it gives us a little bit of time to prepare. And of course, it's still much cooler down here. And not only do bees tend not to come out and fly if it's cold, but if they do fly on colder days, they don't fly as far from their hive or their nest. So that is good news. On the downside, 
almond season starts in three weeks and it's basically made the um, authorities make some decisions um, that they feel they have to make because spring is coming. You know, there's nothing mm. that we can really do about it. Um, but the last couple of incursions have actually occurred during the colder months and it's it has been good. It has been good for us because it's meant that it definitely slows down the distribution of the mite. Yep. Let's talk about wild native bees. This is something that has come up in the scientific community. I've seen commentary that they have essentially said, well, this might be a good thing for them because the the nests of honeybees, so the wild honeybees that are out there that aren't managed by beekeepers, they might die in large proportions and therefore they'll reduce the competition that exists for different pollen sources. So native bees might have more of a chance of actually getting the pollen that they need to survive. I wanted to get your thoughts on that particular take that I've seen because it kind of seems a little bit cruel in a way, but also the listener question relates to this, which is how does this affect wild native bees, if at all? It is a good question, and this issue of European honeybees and people of European heritage like me, beekeeping on these lands that we love, which were never ceded, is always it's always an issue that that we deal with because beekeeping is so much about place. On the one hand, I think that there is some merit in saying that the sort of wild nests will free up habitat, not so much for native bees in Victoria, and I'm speaking from a Victorian beekeeper's point of view, because we don't have the um, species down here of social stingless bees, you know, bees that create nests in a eusocial society. We don't have those bees down here. They tend to be sort of warm, temperate, subtropical and tropical. But definitely there is habitat for birds and possums and things like that that might be freed up. And definitely um, there would be less competition with European honeybees who are incredibly efficient generalist pollinators. However, that has to be balanced with the fact that we have 25 million people in this country who need to be fed and we export food all around the world to other people who require food and those wild bees are providing an enormous free service to farmers in terms of pollination. As I said, one hive is about $165 and that will probably go up because there's a lot of beekeepers who won't take their hives up there for fear of getting varroa from the New South Wales beekeepers. So it's a very complex question. And my response to that in a really big picture sense is that if we can manage our landscapes and manage our food production systems in a really thoughtful way that take into account a variety of ecosystems, and a variety of species, including all of our native bees. And if we can provide um, landscapes that provide habitat for them, as well as landscapes that provide food for humans, then we should be able to strike up a nice balance. Um, but in the meantime, we could be looking at a food crisis with a number of foods that we all love if we're not getting pollination from those uh, wild bees. What you'll effectively see is increases in prices. 
Mm. Uh, varroa mite won't affect native bees. It's only really for the Asian and the honeybees due to the fact that they nest inside the cell. So it doesn't pose a threat to them in terms of disease. Thanks, Nick. Um, it's been really wonderful speaking with you and I really appreciate the depth and breadth of your expertise on this topic. Um, it's something that I think is missing in the conversation, this kind of level of nuance that you've brought to it. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, to... Amy. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.